Assalamualaikum and welcome back to Faith Adelphia, a care-sponsored podcast. I am your host, Hamna Rub. In this episode, I speak to Thamim Hussain and Mariam Abuwade about substance use in the Muslim community. much for taking the time to kind of sit with me and talk about this issue. Um, I think, you know, substance use, you know, drug use in the Muslim community isn't really spoken about. It's more of seen as like, you know, taboo issue. Um, but I really want to take the time to kind of speak about um, this issue and kind of normalize the conversation surrounding and how the Muslim community can do um, better or address this issue. Um, but before we get started, um, can you both please introduce yourselves? Yes, my name is Margarita Miriam Abu Awade. I am a 30-year Hispanic Muslim, and I am currently the youth chair person for the youth programs uh, for Care Philadelphia. Um, I've also been, or am currently, in the mental health um, field, uh, including counseling and nursing. Um, I work currently for the School District of Philadelphia um, as a bilingual counseling and um, dedicated my life, basically, uh, my entire Muslim life to helping the youth in many different areas. So it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Tamim Hussain. Uh, I'm a fourth year medical student at Drexel University. Um, my kind of involvement with this issue uh, comes more just from personal experience being a member of kind of the youth of the community, the Muslim community of Philadelphia and the greater area, uh, and some involvement with uh, uh, ICNA Greater Philadelphia. We did a couple educational kind of programs, uh, some of the masajid in the city. Um, so yeah, just kind of working with the youth in our community in general. Um, it's a really great pleasure to be on and uh, thank you, Hamna. Thank you, Sister Mariam, for uh, agreeing to, to have me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so um, can you kind of dive in or kind of explain like what is substance use disorder? Like when we talk about um, substance use, are we kind of talking about those who are casual users? Are these people who are you know dependent on a drug? Um, what is substance use disorder? Yeah, that's a great starting point. So uh, before I kind of dive into that, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer, which is that I'm going to intentionally shy away from giving an overly like clinical or criteria-based um, uh, definition here because A, it's not very useful for people and B, sometimes the, the trap people fall into is being like, oh, I didn't meet all of the five or six criteria he just mentioned, so I must be fine. So I'm intentionally going to be very vague, um, but I hope people will get the general gist of what we're talking about uh, by what's said. So when we talk about substance use disorder or addiction uh, or drug use disorder, and I intentionally am using all these different words because we kind of use them interchangeably, even though we usually tend to use in the professional world some more than others, we're talking about uh, kind of a spectrum of use of drugs or substances that on its most extreme end leads to someone using that substance even despite the harms that it's causing in their lives. 
Um, so I'm intentionally being very vague. You know, substance use disorder is not necessarily just limited to, for example, heroin or meth. It can also encompass things like tobacco, just smoking cigarettes or alcohol, which is perfectly legal in this country if you're over the age of 21. Um, and in fact, tobacco and alcohol are two of the most commonly uh, abused uh, drugs in the country. So the, the real kind of uh, key of the definition is when the use of that substance becomes harmful to someone and despite that they continue to use it, um, knowing the harms that, that, that it's having on their lives. I agree, I agree with Brother uh, Tamim. Um, you know, sometimes we, we see drug addiction as, oh, the person who's uh, standing in the corner can't keep themselves up, you know, the homeless person. But in reality, you know, the majority of uh, addicts are at home supposedly social user, users. And uh, one thing that Brother Tamim was saying is that substance uh, use disorder leads to addiction. So whether you're a social user or, um, you know, just doing it every so often, it, it's a pre- um, precursor to you becoming an addict in the future. So it's important to be aware of that. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, in the Muslim community, we don't really talk about this issue. Um, it's something, I mean, because it's seen as simple, you know, to engage in drugs, use drugs. Um, this topic has not been really spoken about a lot. I mean, in America, most of us are, you know, first gen, second gen um, Muslim students or, you know, maybe working now. And I'm just wondering from what you both have seen, like what are some reasons that some, you know, young Muslims or, you know, just old other Muslims may turn to drugs? Well, you know, in my experience from what I've done throughout my careers and working with the community over the 30 years um, and having, uh, you know, seen it firsthand, um, drug addiction has no color. Drug addiction has no status, uh, anyone and everyone have, you know, the possibility of uh, being succumbed to some type or some form of addiction. Uh, and I think that, you know, with culture, uh, we have to understand that the stigmas behind addiction and the stigma behind mental health along with the addiction has a great impact on how we deal with the problem at hand, right? When I say that, I mean more like if, if our families culturally are not accepting of or see it as a stigma, mental health or drug addiction, um, as Muslims, as Muslims, we are well, for me, I've heard many times throughout my uh, 30 years of, of being a Muslim, alhamdulillah, is that um, if you have deen, uh, if you have enough deen, you will not succumb to this. If you have enough, uh, you know, if you follow Islam, if you pray, Allah will protect you from this. The problem is that a lot of people don't understand that trauma and chemical reactions to trauma can begin even while you're in the womb of your mother. And so all of that releases certain chemicals in your body. And we cannot put 
a culture on that. We have to be more open and understanding and hope that we can relay information to others as to put away that stigma because the stigma only hurts the person or the people more than it does not to accept it. So with that said, as hard as it is to um, battle those stigmas, it's another jihad. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a jihad of the nifis. And that's the hardest jihad to deal with. You know, and so that's why your nifis, meaning you know, your your yourself, your your character, your personality, we're all different. Every single one of us are different, and every single one of us deal with stress and trauma in different ways, right? So not knowing or not having the skills to be able to deal with those traumas and those conflicts in our life will lead us into finding an easy way out right? Or finding a way to numb our feelings, right? When we can't, uh, you know, uh, handle it, or when we don't know what it is that we're actually feeling, right? When we're not even self-aware of what's going on with ourselves, right? So with that said, you know, it's important that we begin to be the generation of those who are, you know, uh, not taking that anymore, that stigma. You know, mental health comes in all shapes and sizes and all religions and all colors and all sexes. So um, with that said, I just want the people out there to know that they're not alone. That, you know, whether you're Muslim, Christian, Jew, uh, atheist, or you are susceptible if you've had past traumas or past you know, um, issues growing up in your environment, you know, or something recent may not necessarily be something in your past. So we want those who are out there listening to be open to listening to someone else if they have a problem or to be able to open up to someone if they do have an issue and to recognize those issues. That's the first part. Yeah, I, I totally agree uh, with everything that was just said and uh, not to kind of repeat, you know, too much, but I, I think one thing that really stood out to me was uh, what you just finished with was uh, the ability of people in our community to reach out to their family members or their friends or their community members at the, at the masjid is very limited when we have this kind of stigma. And right. the problem with that is that it's actually uh, these pathways for someone who's struggling with drug use or addiction can be mm -hmm. very fruitful pathways if they exist to be able to go through your family or your friends or your faith community to, to access treatment can be very supportive. And when that's not there, people are forced to either not go get treatment at all, or mm -hmm. they are forced to go outside of our community to seek treatment because they don't want to be, uh, you know, stigmatized within, within the masjid or within the community. And so mm -hmm. then there, th that has a lot of problems associated with it. One is that the people running those programs may have the best of intentions, but they don't understand the viewpoint of a Muslim person, right? Uh, and on the, the, the flip side of that also is that um, sometimes they may, because, the, the, you know, as Sister Maryam will tell you, having so much experience, every, there's a lot of uh, counseling and treatment that is not necessarily totally science-based. It's more kind of the prerogative of whoever's doing the counseling. So if someone's coming from a Christian background or an atheist background, they're going to have certain biases in how they counsel somebody. So the, yes. the, the, I, I think uh, 
Agreed. what Sister Mariam said there about uh, seeking help, you know, being able to open up to someone is so important because when people are not able to do that, people don't realize what happens is they then have to turn to non-Muslim outside of the community resources, which may not be the best fit for them or the, the, the most fruitful for them. That, that's very important. Brother Timim, I so agree with you. And I think that one of the reasons why we're holding this podcast is because we want to be able to be an outlet for those that are seeking information or help or um, an understanding of someone else's situation. You know, because one thing that I know is that drug, uh, drug use or abuse, and that could be marijuana, that could be, it could be cannabis, or it could be alcohol, it could be, you know, um, prescribed drugs, it could be so many different things. Um, usually stems from some type of mental instability, right? And when we say instability, I don't mean it to sound negative. I think that we need to realize that there's something that isn't quite you know, that we're not quite have a grasp of, right? We can have a grasp of our grades in school by, you know, studying and studying and studying. But sometimes we don't realize I, I put my body under stress. How many, how many students, even my, my own kids and myself included, have, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed to, to do your finals. And at the end of your finals, you feel deathly ill. You know, your stomach hurts or you feel like you have the flu. This is the chemicals in your body that was really working and working to survive, to put you in that survival mode, to deal with the stress of passing your grades, right? So now if you don't understand this, and if you're not aware, self-aware of that, this is how, why I'm feeling like this, and you may all of a sudden let go of all that energy that you had, and now you're, um, you know, you feel low. You feel low, and so your friends, you know, invite you to a party. Hey, you know, I got a, I got a joint, or I've got, you know, it, it'll make you feel better to help you relax. Let's celebrate that you finished your, you know, your your finals, and and then those experimentations, uh, because you're not aware that oh my god, my body was through so much stress, and you know it mentally, but you don't know it's going to affect you physically, right? And then you say, oh well, that made me feel better. I feel so relaxed. So that's a segue into saying, well, next time I feel stressed out or if I'm trying to release some stress, I'm going to have me a joint or I'm going to, you know, have a sip of wine or a sip of whatever, and that's going to help me relax. When the truth being is that it's because we don't have the skills, right? We don't know other outlets. We haven't learned them yet. And the important thing is to learn those skills so that when those situations arise, we're able to uh, advocate for ourselves and say, you know what? No, uh, this is not how I want to relax. I'm going to go home and take a bath or I'm going to go play basketball because that's going to release some natural, you know, uh, chemicals in my body to help me feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Sense. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And I think uh, one thing you mentioned that uh, resonated with me is, is like in, in a time of stress, you, you go to your friends, right? And mm -hmm. I think, you know, as someone who's only, you know, not too long ago was in high school and then undergrad. And um, I think that's such a key point because, you know, most people, even when they're feeling stressed, they, I, I don't think most young people go, okay, let me go find some marijuana and smoke it on my no. own or something, you know? It's usually you, you go to hang out with your friends to de-stress. Okay. And if your friends are 
at wherever you're going engaged in you know drinking or smoking or whatnot uh then you're much more likely to do that it's it's unlikely you're going to choose that to cope if, if you're just alone um although that that can happen as well uh yeah. so i think that's such a good point it's like that the, the stress you have in your life and then even when you're picking something like socializing as your uh as your kind of outlet uh being uh, careful about how you know how you where who you're socializing with and and how you choose to, to do that is, is really important and uh something you know when i look back as well like i i there, there were certain times i i realized you know there were certain people having a good influence on me a negative influence on me mm-hmm. and uh i think just being aware of that is so important you know just listening to that you know voice inside that's like you know i don't think this person is having a good influence on me uh, right. and not just kind of pushing it away and i think you I, know i'm sorry go ahead no, no, you can go ahead. I, I just wanted to touch on that topic real quick because I remember myself when my children were growing up thinking, oh, if they're hanging with Muslims, then I'm 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 relaxed, right? I'm like chill. Like, all right, they're with Muslims, they you know, they're not gonna go on the wrong path or make the wrong decisions. Uh I, I came to find out that that wasn't the case, right? So uh, the stigma of whether, oh, well, you think your kids are safe because they're hanging around with, say, people from their own culture or people from their own religious background or doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be aware of what they're doing or you shouldn't be, you know, asking questions. Because the truth of the matter is there are some, you know, like I said before, it comes in all colors, shapes and sizes and sexes and religions. So uh, just because another friend is a Muslim doesn't necessarily mean that's the best friend or social person to hang out with or to go to or to distress with. So with that said, we all have our uh, tolerance levels, right? When it comes to stress, uh, trauma and um, you know environment, right? And we all have different ways that we react to that, depending on the situations that we've been in in the past, that we've grown to be accustomed to dealing with in a certain manner, right? So you have the fight and flight or freeze reaction when you are in survival mode, right? So you either fight it, right? You become aggressive and and stand up and you you fight it, or you, you walk away from it, run away from it, or you freeze, you know, and you're left to the mercy of your environment. Um, and, and those are the types of things that we need to look into when it comes to dealing with um, the exposure of uh, drugs and alcohol and, and other addictions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, you know, when when we talk about like the reasons why people end up using or end up uh, uh, using in a harmful way and end up addicted, it's, it's just like you said, there's so many factors that can go into it. And trying to tease them apart is really difficult because if uh, we know, for example, there's very likely to be some sort of genetic uh, predisposition some people have to, to, to become addicted, but it's very difficult to tease that out of Okay, mm-hmm. so someone, it, you know, they, they have a history of drug use in their family. Um, now, did, did the kids of, you know, did the subsequent generation start using because they were in a dysfunctional household where drug use is prevalent, and then they ended up becoming, uh, starting to use, or was it a genetic predisposition? It's very hard to tease these things out. And the, the reality is for most people, it's going to be a combination of various factors. And I guess since we're trying to 
kind of really speak to someone who may be struggling, one thing I would say is if, if you feel like you're from a family where it's prevalent or you've seen a lot of people um, use or you come from a dysfunctional household, um, never feel that you're destined to end up down that path as well. You know, there's a way out, you know, that, uh, first of all, just from, from a general perspective, there's a way out for everyone, right? And there's support available for everyone. And then from a more spiritual perspective, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can make a way out for anyone, right? Um, okay. Anyone as, as deep as they may be in use or addiction, there's, there can be a way facilitated out for them. And what's amazing is you, you meet people, um, I'm sure Samariam, you know, you've talked to people, way, way more people than I have, who they'll describe to you what situation they were in before they got help and you can't even believe it. Um, and they, they can't even believe it. They'll tell you, if you had told me I was going to get out of you know, that situation and I was going to end up back with a home, having a family, having a job, I would never have believed you. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, for the people out there who may be struggling and they may be, they may be even surrounded by drug use in their family or just from a dysfunctional household, don't feel like you're destined to end up that way. You know, there's a way out for everyone. And, and you know what, too, uh, Brother Tamim? That's the majority, right? But there are some minorities where um, it passes generation from generation, I think, uh, chemically, you know, with the imbalance in the body at times. But like you said, that doesn't mean that they're predisposition to being a drug or alcohol um, addict or any particular type of that. Um, I think the schools have done a great job with bringing awareness to drugs and bringing awareness to mental health issues. But and then again, social media has played a part in really, you know, putting more stress on um, the young, the youth. And uh, so, you know, everything has a balance and finding that balance is really complex, right? And don't think that, oh, well, I'm in a situation, there's no way out. There's always a way out always a way out. The first step is recognizing that there is a problem. Uh, recognizing that I have something that's impeding my well-being. That could be your job, your studies, your relationship, your family uh, relationship. So that's number one. Once you feel that, that you have something that's impeding you from, from progressing in a healthy way in your life, then you have to do your best to seek appropriate help. And I don't mean, you know, your next door neighbor who sells, you know, dope or has beers hanging out left and right or who, you know, not that type of help. We're talking about more someone. And I think that's what uh, Tamim and I and Mona, uh, Humna are here trying to um, establish uh, for the community is a place where you can come and you know that you know, what you're saying to us is safe. It's uh, being held with all discretion. Uh, nothing gets repeated. Um, you know, we're here to help guide those and not to forget that in the process of healing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with, with, uh, with, you know, hardship comes ease, right? So, and, and it's in the very moment so even if you're going through a hardship, right? Even if you've done something that you regret, you can always, you know, seek forgiveness and ask for guidance. And that guidance can come in so many different ways, but you have to be open to it. And so opening yourself up to acknowledging, you know, and then opening yourself up to, to, to trying to get some assistance for somebody or for someone or a loved one or a friend 
or yourself is important. Definitely. And also one thing is kind of going back to socialization. Um, I don't know to me if you're, you've kind of gone through this or you're going through this, isn't really an issue that kind of ends when you leave high school or college. In socialization, I guess, you know, in different fields as Muslims are trying to stem out, you know, from those typical doctor, lawyer, engineer jobs, you know, they're trying to get into, you know, politics, which is one example. So speaking personally, you know, Alhamdulillah, I've gotten like the opportunities to work in politics. And one big thing, you know, is, you know, the socialization aspect of it. You go to different events and parties and the number one thing is alcohol. Alcohol is there for everyone to drink. And I mean, me personally, I prefer not to be simply in the room or, you know, in that environment. And that hinders my experience. That hinders, you know, what I can do in the future. That, you know, and I'll be very blunt about it. It, it. It's, you know, quite unfortunate, you know, that's, you know, if I want to get into politics, I want to, you know, run for office one day, whatever that may be. So, I mean, the other people may relate, you know, you kind of are hurt by this because alcohol is such a big part of American culture, Westernized culture, and the inability to be simply in that environment hurts you because you may not be able to meet this one politician or a connection or whatever that may be in whatever field. And even in say like business, business is huge, you know, that all you do is, you know, have relationships with people. And even within that community, um, there's a lot of, you know, alcohol consumption, even cocaine, cocaine consumption, because that's also been normalized since it's a fast paced environment. But I don't know if um, the both of you have, have had that experience, but for me personally, I've seen it, you know, as I'm trying to kind of solidify my pathway and get more involved in the community in all aspects where Muslims aren't really present, unfortunately, um, there's, really a, a struggle to kind of stray but also not be influenced by those who um may be involved in those um, actions i i i would say that uh, as a human being right we all try to fit in and click in the community right a sense of belonging even with refugees they bring them into this country right and they try to allocate them into communities, right? Why is that important? It's because we fit in, right? We feel a sense of belonging, a sense of comfort, right? And when we're you, with your peers, you want that same type of feeling, right? A sense of comfort, a sense of belonging and acceptance. It's just a human nature. It's just how, you know, we function. Now, um, I can say from my experience, coming from a family who are not Muslim, the struggles that I went through and how I chose to either respond or to how I chose to fit in again, right? So imagine yourself uh, being the only Muslim uh, on campus and you're getting harassed or you're getting, if you're a girl, you're getting your hijab taken off or if you're a young Muslim male and you wear a kufi, you're getting your kufi, you know, pulled off. Or you're being told, oh, you know, you're leaving your culture, you're accepting another culture, you know, this is a cult and, and things of that nature. So I'm speaking from experience, my own personal experience. I love my family. My family loved me. We were raised very well. We were raised in the best loving environment. But Catholicism was a very big part of my family life, right? Coming from a big family of 14 people, 14, you know, 13 siblings, and I'm the, the youngest of the 14, made a, you know, me converting into Islam. I'll never forget the words of my mother, Alhamdulillah, who, who actually uh, became Muslim. Wow. Um, after 16 years of me being a Muslim. 
she says to me, it doesn't matter what path you choose, as long as it's the path of God, then you should be safe, right? I think what, you know, this is an important message, was an important message to me, knowing that she knew that you, regardless of how you try to connect with your spirituality and your in yourself, that you can't go wrong if you're trying to connect to that. So self-awareness and spirituality helps you uh, combat those types of issues. When I go visit my family, table full of, uh, you know, alcohol, pork, you know, you name it, it's there. So what do you do? Do you stay away from your loved ones? Do they not get to see the example of Islam and how it has become part of your life? No, you have to overcome that. You have to be stronger than that. Just the other day, my sister says to me, uh, I told her, oh, uh, two of my sisters are coming over. Why don't you come by, you know, we'll have a visit. And she says, oh, I can bring a bottle of wine. And she says, oh, yeah, that's right. You don't have wine. <laughs> so, I mean, those are the type of situations I live every day, you know, being being uh, from a non-Muslim family. So um, learning to stand firm on your belief um, and what you know is healthiest for you mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally um, is, is a very um, enlightenment and is a huge gift. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate uh, kind of hearing those experiences, you know, coming from a family where everyone's Muslim. It's not, you know, we're, we're often ignorant about the realities, you know, a lot of people face when, when they have family members who are not Muslim. Um, and I think uh, one thing I, I do want to differentiate between is obviously we as Muslims, we have any kind of substance or drug use when it comes to alcohol or according to most people, tobacco, um, and, you know, in general, any sort of intoxicant is problematic for us. Any, any use, even social recreational use, that's not to the level of what we would define as addiction. So we, we, I guess we kind of have to differentiate between these two things. Like we're talking on one hand to people who they may actually be struggling with addiction or substance use disorder versus someone who may be, you know, one of the Muslim listeners who's young, who's just struggling to kind of fit in and they may drink occasionally. It's not a problem in terms of like a literal sense, like a health sense, like they're dependent on it or they use it despite harmful consequences. But they know as a Muslim, they're not supposed to be drinking. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying, you know, in professional settings, um, alcohol is, is everywhere when it comes to socializing. That is the central way people socialize. Um, thankfully I, I work in, you know, being in healthcare, usually you're not allowed having alcohol in like a hospital. <laughs> so at least in that, in the actual workplace, we, I don't have to deal with it, but for sure, all the socialization, even some professional events will be, uh, they will have alcohol and yeah. it can be very, uh, awkward. And I think sister Mariam, you know, I think it's much more difficult when, it, you know, it must be family. Um, but I will say for, for people who are worried about that, um, going into like uh, professional fields. I will say, I think it's improving in the sense that I think there's more of an awareness now that there are people who have very unhealthy relationships with alcohol, especially. So I, I see an increasing awareness of that and that kind of movement and not instigated by Muslims but by any means, just in the general professional population that really when it comes to our professional interactions and our professional social events, 
we should start moving away from alcohol-based things because there's people who will feel pressured to drink, who, do, who don't normally drink, and, and who may have, you know, even, you know, people who are non-Muslim who they have a history of alcohol, you know, use disorder. And maybe they may be clean for 10, 15 years, but then they say, oh, I need to go to this social event because I'm trying to get a promotion. My family's struggling. We need the money. So they go and then they're around alcohol. They haven't been around it in so many years. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it can be tough for people. So I, I would just say to someone who's worried about that moving forward, it's, it's definitely a challenge you should expect, but uh, there is some optimism. I think it's, it's getting better. I agree with what you're saying. Maybe people may have different experiences. And, you know, Samari, I really appreciate you kind of speaking on your experience because that's something I never dealt with. And much let me reward you because that's just a big struggle. I'm just wondering, you know, what do you both think the Muslim community can do to kind of support those who are, you know, suffering from substance use disorder? What do you kind of see our community doing in the future? Um, Brother Tamim, would you like to take that one and then I'll follow up? Sure, sure. So uh, I think the, the first thing that uh, we have to kind of look at as a community is how can we make drug use and addiction and substance use something that an individual who's struggling feels comfortable walking into their masjid, going to the imam or going to a community leader and saying, look, I'm struggling with this problem. I need help. Right. I think that is like that kind of process is something we really, you know, we need to get to that point. Of course, even beyond that, we would love for it to be a situation where the family, you know, Muslim families are more open about this. But, um, you know, th- I, I will say, you know, that I sometimes I think we put too much pressure on the Muslim community for t- to a certain degree. Like we're a mix of so many different cultures and backgrounds, socioeconomic status. Like there's not going to be one solution for everyone and every community. But when we talk about our institutions, which usually is a mosque or it could be an MSA or something like that, um, we need to make our institutions ready to handle those who may need help from our community. Um, we are a relatively small portion of the population. So it's not necessarily going to be practical to have, for example, huge treatment programs for Muslim people, because there's not that many Muslims, period, let alone Muslims suffering from this problem. Although there are a lot, we're still a small percent of the, the population. But even just uh, creating relationships with existing programs Um, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim and just integrating ourselves as a community uh, into those, into that system, I think will be really important. So I I, I think uh, that the the two main things I would say is we need to work towards uh, opening the conversation, destigmatizing this in our community and making our institutions ready to uh, handle and work with people who are struggling with the problem to either provide them the help they need in that setting or to redirect them somewhere they'll get good help. I think those are two really big, big priorities we have to have. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Brother Tamim, um, very much so. Um, we need um, to have outlets for our communities, um, all communities, not just the youth. You know, adults suffer from many addictions and many mental health issues uh, as well. And, and they're just not aware or they're just in denial or you know, they don't want to be stigmatized, right? And I want to give you an example of stigmatization, which is, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me as a professional in the field, but I do uh, understand because of the cultural relations um, in the community. But um, say you have someone who, uh, a young male, say, who has been out there, 
you know, um, and, and has uh, experimented with, uh, you know, alcohol or drug abuse or gone gambling a couple of times. Well, you know, word gets out, you know, word gets out, so-and-so saw so-and-so and this went, this happened, and then it becomes through the grapevine, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's son, he's a drug addict, he's an alcoholic, he's, he's you know, addicted to gambling, he'll never have marriage prospects, be careful, don't ever give your daughters to that child or that young man. And with the girls, you know, it could be the same thing. If they have friends who have been seen doing something who are not Muslim, then because they're socializing with them, uh, then they're considered to be part of their um, same, uh, you know, uh, social lifestyle, which is very, you know, very against our religion to be judging people to that extent. You know, it is not our job to judge. It is God's job. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate judge. We are here to help and guide our communities, not to judge them and not to stigmatize them and not to put them into a group of, you know, misfits. No, we are all human beings. We are all susceptible to some type of struggles in our lives. And these are tests from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And with these tests, come struggles and with the struggle comes ease and we want you all to know that that um it, it, it matters not to some of us here you know and we were very careful to choose those who will be part of this podcast so that we know that this is something we want it to be a safe space basically uh a safe space where everyone is going to be uh welcome regardless when no one's going to be judged and all we're here for is to listen to help guide. Um, one thing I wanted to say about uh, culture that, um, you know, 90%, I think it's, no, 50% of the mental health in the United States, in the United States of mental health sufferers are white, are white people. That's 50%. I mean, if you, if you really think about it, you, you, you know, you, you, you think, you know, wow, you know, those who are, you know, more, um, what is the word that we use? Uh, I'm lost for words, but, the, you know, who have it all, right? The white people who don't have no discrimination and no, you know, uh, you so know, yeah. like the brown and, and ethnic groups, right? So, you know, it's just it's just amazing, and this just goes to show you that it's it's not based on um, on race or any particular color. It really is based on, you know, the environment that we have um, been susceptible to, uh, whether we were part of it or not. Um, you know, we are human beings, and with all good things, we need people who understand. And if you seek help in a masjid, and and you don't seem to to get type of help that you feel that you need you know seek help elsewhere don't stop just because a masjid uh, doesn't have the type of help you need uh you know reach out to to someone from from care reach out to someone from you know nami nami is a huge mental health uh organization that that deals with addiction as well you know and they help advocate for you uh they help you to teach you the skills that you need to advocate for yourself uh, learn, uh, you know, uh, you know, conversational um, uh, skills so that you can have an open conversation with your parents or with your loved one or with your spouse or, 
you know, with a very good friend. Um, these are things that we're here to help with. And we hope that in the future podcasts that we'll be able to touch on those. Um, Brother Tamim has uh, much uh, to share on the, in regards to those things. And, and so we hope that those will be future topics that we can touch on. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I also wanted to say was that just for, especially if there's someone listening who they're afraid to um, kind of seek help within the Muslim community, I, I will I will caution you and say there are certain scenarios where if you go to someone in certain communities, you will get a bad response. Unfortunately, I just have to say the honest truth. But sure. I will also say that when I uh, when we were doing work with ICNA to try to work with the Masajid to talk more about this issue almost mm -hmm. we either got no response which may not have been they may just not be checking their email to be if you work with Masad, did you know that's very common <laughs> so they probably just didn't see the email of everyone who responded they are desperate to learn more about this issue and the leadership including the imams of most communities are very aware that it's an issue they're not interested in pushing people away or yelling at you for be using drugs. They, th in fact, many people are already going to them and have gone to them seeking help with this. And they are looking for more tools to help you and to help anyone else who may seek help. So don't hesitate to you know, reach out to people in your community. I know that's easy. Uh, I think that's, that's another issue that's kind of, it, it, all these things are interrelated. You know, Not everyone has access to the imams, especially sisters in the community are not always able to access the imams as easily. Uh, or if you're not from a community or if there's a language barrier, but I will say, you know, don't assume that your community or the leadership of your community or the imams or the teachers or the female scholars, male scholars, that they're not going to be there for you, because in many cases they will. So, you know, I, I would say if, if, if you if you have a good relationship with someone and you know them to be a good, kind person, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Can I guarantee you they're going to give you a good response? No, I can't. But uh, th there are many, many, many people who will, and they may be able to redirect you to, to, to uh, good help. Uh, that brings me um, to a memory to me of when um, the mental health, a DBHIS, the Department of Behavioral Health in Philadelphia, uh, set out on a <clears throat> on a pledge to inform. Uh, uh, it was called for suicide intervention and mental health awareness to all the religious uh, organizations in Philadelphia, you know, synagogues, churches, mosques. So they were training the um, leadership to, to, be, uh, to have the tools, to be able to help someone who comes. So it's, it's more likely than not that um, your congregation has already been trained in, in the area as to where to, you know, uh, guide you for help either with themselves or if it's a more severe situation um, they have the resources to be able to tap into for you or for a loved one so thank you for bringing that up to me I know that many people you know there's a debate of whether or not you know um, addiction is uh, merely or genetics plays a part of it but um, I'm, I'm very um, I know that, that that does play a part um, to some extent with addiction, but I also know that um, in my studies, uh, we found that, you know, uh, have the environmental traumas and experiences that we 
have in, you know, faced or not faced, um, it can make a huge impact on our mental health, right? And I just want to mention a couple of statistics where um, NAMI, you know, has uh, written that one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness. So if you're in a room with 10 people, that means that at least two of you have a mental illness, okay? So take that into consideration. One in 20 adults experience serious mental health uh, illnesses. 17% uh, of youth age 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder. 19% um, of the U.S. have an anxiety disorder. 1% suffer from schizophrenia. 4% have dual diagnoses, which means they can be having depression, bipolar, uh, OCD, ODD, ADHD, uh, border, and 1% have borderline personality disorders, 3% have uh, bipolar disorder, 8% of the U.S. population have depression, 1% have OCD, and 4% have the post-traumatic stress disorder. Looking at that numbers, they don't sound like much, right? But if you take into consideration the entire United States of America, right, where, um, so I guess what I'm saying that they go hand in hand, you know, addiction can stem from mental health issues and you can have mental health issues from addiction. So it's something that uh, we know to, to, to be kind of uh, uh, related in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And my, my kind of closing thought is on a little bit of a different limb. Uh, so I, I'm going to guess that if there's a, a member of our youth in the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia community or anywhere who's listening to this podcast, they generally are someone who's a little bit more plugged into the community and leadership and that sort of thing. Because usually if you're listening to a care podcast, you, you tend to be that type of person. So I would say, uh, you know, we've spoken a lot to people who are struggling or they have, may have a family member that's struggling or, or something along that, those lines. But I, I would like to say to someone who comes from, you know, you come from a, a kind of a secure home, you've had a good upbringing, you've had good, you know, Muslim kind of tarbiya, uh, you know, you, you, you've had the opportunity to attend good masajid and learn about your faith from really positive role models and you're really passionate about Islam and, you know, you, you struggle just like anyone else, but you don't necessarily think, you know, you don't fear as much that you're going to end up drinking or anything like that. You, as a member of the youth in your community, have a huge responsibility, I think, right? That you need to be willing to take advantage of the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you to be in that position and create spaces for your peers who are the same age as you to feel included, to feel comfortable where they don't have the pressure of drinking or smoking weed or even using drugs beyond that. Uh, you, you know, I think one of the big, uh, within our youth community, one of the big failures we have is that those, those who may be, you know, ha may have things a little bit more secure, uh, sometimes we're so focused on our own careers and our own goals that we forget about just looking out for the people around us. And we kind of have to look out for each other because other people aren't going to look out for, for, for our people in the way we will. Uh, so I would really challenge someone who's from, who's, who's kind of from that demographic to really branch out and try to create those spaces uh, for your peers, inshallah. To the both of you, I really appreciate um, everything you both had to say. May Allah reward you both for taking the time out. I know it was a lot of work, um, but I definitely think this will be a beneficial um, conversation for a lot of people to listen to. 
Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Care Philly. Inshallah, we will be back soon with another episode. Assalamu alaikum.